Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf. I am here in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in our nation's capital, or near our nation's capital. And also in our nation's capital, we have Mika Oyang of The Third Way, uh, and we have uh, Evelyn Farkas of the German Marshall Fund, and far, far away in Canberra, Australia, um, which has, as far as I can recall, very little to recommend it, although there's one street with a couple of that cool restaurants. That is so mistaken, David. You know what Canberra has to recommend it? Uh, in addition to the people of Canberra, who are the main reason to be here, it also has a fabulous war memorial. It has a really interesting contemporary art museum. Uh, it has lots of great restaurants. Um, and and so no anti-Australian bias. No, no, it has Australia. No I love dismissiveness of Canberra. Listen, first of all, we have many deep state radio nerds in Australia. Secondly, I love Australia. Um, but I have to say Canberra was not like the high point of my visit to Australia, even though the people <laughs> were great. We did have a great experience. One of the last times I was in Australia, we were dry. We landed after the, you know, epic flight. We're in a car driving from Sydney to Canberra just because I was with my wife and she'd never been to Australia and I wanted her to see what was going on. And she, as we were driving to Canberra, she went, oh, my God, that must be a thousand kangaroos. And I was like, honey, you have been awake for 23 hours. There is no way there are a thousand kangaroos. I've been to Australia many times and I've barely seen one. You know, you just, they're just not out there. You're hallucinating. And she said, no, they're, they're, they're kangaroos. And I was like, come on. And then we turned to the left and there were like a thousand kangaroos bounding across this this field, they'd come out for her. They had neglected me on my preceding five visits. Um, and then we got to Canberra, and it was snowing. It was bizarre. It was an alternative universe. Um, I thought one of the things that we could do on this episode of Deep State Radio um, is look at you know what's going on in a few of our allied countries and other countries around the world um, just right now that 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 you know may. Uh, maybe newsworthy. In other words, kind of do a tour of the horizon. And I wanted to start with some breaking news of the day that we are recording this, um, which is a Monday. Uh, and that is, it looks like for the first time in 20 years that the government of Algeria is going to change. Um, and the president who was going to considering running again was going to step down. Uh, and this is all due to protests in the street. And uh, there's going to be a new process. And 
looks like reforms could be possible. And I guess the the question that comes up here, and I'll start with you, Mika. We can go around to anybody who wants to address these. Um, uh, is you know, is this a you know foreshadowing because the region obviously has many situations like the one in Algeria. I mean, I'm a little hesitant to say that it could catch on like wildfire because I feel like we've already been through a round of this in the Middle East with the Arab Spring, which started in neighboring Tunisia. I think that we do see tremendous frustration with a large number of the countries in North Africa and some of the Arab countries in the Middle East because they have not been particularly responsive to the democratic concerns of their populace. So, you know, potentially this is a really great thing where governments will be more responsive to the people and actually want to have votes. But it also could go in a really scary direction and could wind up being really chaotic, as we saw, you know, in Egypt and other places. So I think that jury's still out, but there were a number of countries where the leadership did not change over as a result of Arab Spring. And the question is, is this a belated Arab Spring or is this something different? Uh, yeah, but, it, you know, I mean, I, I only raise it because it does put a question mark over the president's careful strategy of drawing himself closer to autocrats um, <laughs> and strongmen who appear to be strong, but then they have problems boiling um, beneath the surface. Do either you, Corey, or you, Evelyn, have anything you want to say on this topic? I do, which is, uh, you know, at a time where uh, democracy is in retreat in many parts of the globe and nowhere more than the Middle East and North Africa, because as Mika pointed out, the the beneficiaries of the desire on the part of peoples in the Middle East to one representative government, the response has been cracked down by authoritarian regimes. And and watching the nervousness of uh, Sisi in Egypt that, you know, we may be seeing the return to public activism for people who want government that has only limited control over them. And um, so autocrats are nervous. That's wonderful. Um, all of us should think about what we can do helpful to make peaceful protest a stronger tool in those societies. I personally very much hope um, that the people of Algeria get a contested election in which uh, in which the system permits a post Bouteflika successor to have to compete for uh, Algerian votes. That would be a really beautiful thing. But as Mika pointed out, there's a lot of blue water between now and that happy outcome. And the very forces in the Algerian government that that perpetrated this notion that you could put um, an ailing elderly Bouteflika up for yet another term and get away with it, those forces are unlikely to not have backup plans, not to have cards up their sleeves to try and prevent the people from Algeria from having a decent government. 
Well, let's move on someplace else in the neighborhood, shall we, Evelyn? Maybe you can address this. <laughs> Not too far away, um, as the crow flies, in Israel, the prime minister is running for re-election and um, made a statement that produced outcries uh, initially in the um, uh, movie community there, but also from everybody else with ears, uh, in which he said uh, uh, that uh, the country was uh, not a country for everybody who lived there. In other words, you know, there were uh, the, you know, this was for Jews and it was not for Arabs. Uh, he sort of said the thing that everybody knew he thought, um, but uh, it has produced an outcry. Um, and I was just wondering whether you think that has ramifications. Yeah, I, it, it completely has ramifications. It's one thing to say that Israel is a Jewish state. It's another thing to say it's a state only for Jewish people. I mean, um, you know, and, and from its inception, they have had Arabs in their midst. And it's been very clear from, uh, you know, it's been clear that the Arabs in their midst are also citizens. And so uh, what he's saying is outrageous and people should be outraged in Israel and elsewhere. I mean, a normal uh, White House, a normal government of the United States of America would also speak out and say, we are extremely alarmed and disappointed by that kind of statement. Because, you know, once you start um, questioning people's citizenship, then you, then you implicitly put out there that you can treat people of a different religion or ethnicity um, differently. And they have rights under the Israeli constitution, the Arabs living in Israel. So um, it's, 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 and the other aspect of this, obviously, is how disgustingly opportunistic and self-serving he is being, because he's doing this right now to try to save his political skin. He's going even farther to the right. I mean, like the fringe, I mean, the fringe, practically, you know, in Israel to get his support so that he can try to win in the next round of elections while he's also trying to defend himself against corruption charges. I don't know exactly when the trials are going to start, but those are imminent, right? So um, it, it, it's disgusting, and it's exactly this kind of radical nationalist talk that those of us who are, you know, policy wonks rail about, because it, it, it's, it's a road that once you start going down can lead to people getting hurt, no joke. And, and we see this also in our country when our president tries to distinguish between, you know, um, citizens and green card holders. For example, Khashoggi, he tried to, you know, uh, dismiss essentially what was a, mur you know, a murder and a human rights violation of, of, a, of a Saudi citizen, but someone who had a green card here in the United States, which means that he deserved the protection, some sort of protection from the U.S. government as a resident. Of course, it didn't happen in the United States, but nevertheless, our president also likes to kind of slice and dice pieces of our population and try to um, move closer to a rhetoric that, that if he had his way, he probably would say something racist, like, you know, uh, I mean, again, the people who rejoice at his statements are the ones who want a, you know, some kind of white America, the white nationalist, the white uh, supremacist. So, this nationalism is really dangerous. Again, when people people will inevitably say, "But Evelyn, we should all be proud, and you know, it is a Jewish state." Yes, so you can be a patriot and you can be proud of your state, but that doesn't mean that you are a radical nationalist 
defining yourself against others and in opposition to others. So I, I get very worked up about this kind of thing. Yeah. Well, you know, Corey, according to the president of the United States, the uh, Democrats hate the Jews. Yeah. It's going to come as a real surprise it, to Chuck Schumer. Go oh boy. Don't tell him. He's going to be shocked. Um, <laughs> the uh, anti-Semitism and the racism that this president not only practices, but I fear is creating a, a safe space to occur throughout American civil society and beyond is possibly the worst thing that the Trump administration is doing to our United States. It's really genuinely terrible. And all of us people of good faith need to channel the great novelist William Faulkner, who wrote, there are some things we must never accept. We must never allow to be okay. We must always object to. We must always refuse to countenance. You know, it's a, it's interesting, Mika. I mean, not interesting, it's harrowing, but, you know, I, I, and I guess we talk about this tangentially, but the degree to which racism and the desire to divide people is shaping U.S. foreign policy at the moment is kind of remarkable, whether it's Muslim bans or whether it's the border with Mexico or whether it's the president, I mean, the president, you know, his, his press secretary said that, you know, the U.S.-Mexico uh, trade agreement that he wants to get through is what's going to pay for the wall. But, you know, this was all this long story that goes back into the campaign, or it's this is issue with Israel and the Jews. Um, uh, the, we're, we're in a particularly dark period with foreign policy because so much of it is going and getting commingled with identity politics. Yeah, I think it's really very disturbing. One of Trump's favorite modes is this, you know, rhetorical line that is the equivalent of bad people, usually some shade of brown, are coming from outside the United States to do harm to Americans. And he comes back to this trope over and over again, whether or not it's about illegal aliens and who are committing crimes in the United States, right? Because there are no crimes without illegal aliens. No, obviously not. And or about terrorism, and so the he, Trump, the Trump family alone has committed so many crimes with that, you know. Anyway. Right, right. Um, you know, and so he he continues to stoke this fire of bad people coming from outside the United States to do us harm, and this us versus them drumbeat, you know, raises fear, divides people, it sends them to their small tribal corners. And you see this with authoritarians all over the world, right? Trying to make somebody else the enemy to distract from a conversation about what their policies are actually doing. So instead of talking about the ways in which the Trump proposed budget will hollow out what's strong about America and make us, as Pelosi just said, uh, sicker and weaker, right? He will focus on how there are bad people out there who are trying to hurt us. Um, and you see this in all kinds of places, right? It's not just this president. It's, you know, it's people all over the world. You see this in Eastern Europe with Viktor Orban. You see this in other places where the leaders will create an enemy, 
to unite the people against that enemy. And we can't really have a conversation about what's going on in our country and what's necessary because people get so afraid. And, you know, we've looked at this in the public polling. When people are afraid, they tend to embrace more conservative and overbroad solutions. So you actually wind up with worse policy outcomes as a result of that kind of fear. And that's another consequence. You know, when Corey's talking about the the divisiveness that happens that could result in actual violence against individuals, as we saw with this Coast Guard lieutenant commander, we also see a preference for bad policy solutions happening in the American electorate. Uh, you know, Evelyn, a lot of this traces itself back to your favorite guy, Vladimir Putin. <laughs> um, blame it on him. Uh, well, you know, obviously there's a lot of racism in the world and there's a lot of division, but he's really used it as a technique. And the people he supports around the world are using it as a technique, you know, whether it's Orban or the Italians and refugees or or Le Pen or um uh the, you know the 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 ukip or or trump you know these are all people that have won p- the patronage of, of putin and have embraced the politics of 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 race and identity and fear of the other yeah although vladimir putin is not really uh like any kind of ideologue i mean he just basically wants to sow division and you know, in the good kind of uh, tried and true Soviet sense, you know, make us fight one another. But in the more modern world, he can actually um, do a lot more harm because he can reach our citizens directly. He can, um, you know, actually create um, through the use of his little army of Internet folks, um, create fake demonstrations and, and all kinds of real demonstrations. And, you know, there's a lot more he can do given social media and modern technology. He also plays with ideology in Russia itself. It's really interesting because as we were on the, um, you know, doing our recording, I got this from Radio Free Europe. I get these little alerts and I know I'm such a wonk like that. I don't get them from somewhere cooler like TMZ. But anyway, I get them from Radio Free Europe and it says one time Russian hero selling gold Crimea medal bearing despised Putin. The, The nationalists are very... Um, the real nationalists in Russia are quite angry at at Putin because he got their hopes up, you know, that somehow they would, um, I don't know, seize all of Ukraine and that they would be rewarded. And meanwhile, they've been accused of war crimes. And the Russian government, of course, is trying to put them back in the box. So um, this guy's broke and trying to sell his medal. I mean, he's also been implicated in the shoot down of the MH17. Um, you know, the Russian government could end up serving him up on a platter if they if they feel pressed to do so. Certainly a future Russian government could. But um, I'm surprised, actually, the guy's walking around alive now that he put this this medal up for sale. We'll see. But um, anyway, my whole point is just that Putin plays with different groups, but he doesn't really he's not really a true believer. So he can shift shift as he needs to. Um, And of course, he's he's doing that today. The only ideology he has is trying to keep himself in power, keep all of us weakened, and to fight against the very important principle that the UN adopted back in the 2000s, which is the the right to protect innocent civilians against their brutal despotic leaders, which of course he and the Chinese government push back against because they're essentially afraid that that could lead to their demise. 
So, Corey, you remember how in the last episode that we did, I made this statement congratulating myself for not mentioning South Florida sex clubs? Oh, David, please don't give me that visual. <laughs> okay, well, I'm not going to actually give you but the it's visual. So interesting. Yeah, but but I'm not going to give you the is- visual of, of the sex club. Exactly. Um, but but I, I want to talk a little bit about a dimension of this case, which is that you know, there was all this shock when Trump was running for president. There was a dossier that maybe he had been involved with some kind of prostitute in prostitutes in a hotel in Russia, and maybe there'd been a golden shower and et cetera, et cetera. And everybody was like, oh my God, that's titillating. Maybe there's a video. Maybe there's something about this. Um, and of course, since then, we've seen videos and tapes about, you know, where he'd grab people and the payoffs and the hush money and all this other stuff. Now it turns out that there is this woman who founded a string of um, sex spas where human beings were trafficked in and kept as slaves and rented out um, uh, to people for their sexual pleasure. And that that woman became part of the Mar-a-Lago in-crowd, gave money to Trump, gave money to the GOP, had a little MAGA purse which she could be photographed with uh, Don Trump Jr., got photographed with all the Trumps, was at a Super Bowl party in which the president sat next to her. They got their photo taken. Uh, Ironically, of course, the Super Bowl victory went to the Patriots, owned by Robert Kraft, who was arrested in the raid on this place, and it was a friend of Trump's. Um, Turns out she has a business, and the business with her husband essentially sells access to Republicans, to Mar-a-Lago, to the Trumps, to the Trump administration, to Chinese business people. Um, And, uh, you know, this creates a whole host of other images that you don't need. But, But it also raises some real questions about common sense security precautions, common sense about who the president and his people associate with, what the consequences of renting out the presidency and renting out, you know, making Mar-a-Lago this kind of place where you can buy access are. Um, uh, And now we've learned, thanks to some reporting from Mother Jones, that this woman um, was actively involved in a couple of organizations that are known to be closely associated with the Chinese government, which, of course, raises a whole bunch of other possibilities. Uh, And, you know, I was just wondering, you know, what your reaction, I won't get everybody's reaction to this, but the reaction is to this thing, which to me you know, is worse than any videotape that may have been made in, in, in a Russian hotel. Um, not because of the sort of salacious elements of it, but because of the national security risks associated with it. Uh, so I agree with you that both, um, both uh, sexual depredations by the country's leaders, the people we ought to be able to have our children look up to, and that um, and that are uh, blackmailable by foreign governments are a bad thing. But I, like you, am much more concerned about the violations of the Emoluments Clause 
of the Constitution. Uh, the way that foreign governments are buying access by becoming members of Trump's golf courses and the uh, and staying at the Trump Hotel on Pennsylvania Avenue, and also the enormous bonanza of foreign intelligence exposure all of those things create, uh, that that is, uh, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm literally speechless about how it is happening that foreign governments can buy intelligence access to the president of the United States. And, and I very much hope that Congress will spend lots of time looking into how is this possible? And wow, since norms actually aren't going to be good enough to prevent uh, people from using the American government to commercial advantage in this way, uh, let's go back to the emoluments clause of the constitution and force accountability on the elected chief executive because this is really terrible for democracy in America for people to believe that you can buy access, to believe that our leadership is in the hands of foreign um, governments, and worst of all, for it to be true. Mika, I seem to recall having seen a quote from you on this subject um, in which you were expressing some concerns about the national security implications. Yeah, you know, uh, having served on the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, spending a lot of time doing research into what makes someone vulnerable to espionage and looking at the kinds of cases that we have, I'm with Corey on this one. What's going on here from a counterintelligence perspective is deeply disturbing. And it's not just that this woman is selling, buying and selling access to Mar-a-Lago, but it is the president's routine ignoring of all the security protocols that have developed over the years to try and protect the nation's secrets from our foreign adversaries, whether it is speaking on an unsecured iPhone, from meet, meeting with foreign leaders with only their translator present, you know, for sending his son-in-law to meet with foreign leaders without any State Department personnel present, without sending cable back to meeting with North Korean leaders without any, you know, with very small numbers of people present to these allegations that perhaps they've given away foreign intelligence to other adversaries where the president's blurted out things in public uh, venues about intelligence that we've gotten from allies. Clearances. To, Don't forget clearances. And the clearances, right? Jared Kushner's clearances and others, you know, to, to the leverage that the president has because of his foreign creditors and businesses overseas. What's amazing to me, actually, is that we have gone this long in our nation's history without this coming up as an issue. That's how strong this norm is. And I was looking back on President's Day at um, Washington's inaugural address, and he talked about how he was forswearing any payment for the office of president because he did not want to be accused of any kind of financial benefit for being in the office of the president. And his example has held for hundreds of years until we get to this guy. And this Cindy Yang affair, I mean, if Hillary Clinton had done this, you remember the 
criticism that the Clinton Foundation got over its dealings with foreign governments. And that was a nonprofit disconnected from Hillary Clinton in her and her service in government. It raised serious questions for many people, but that is nothing like what we see here with people in Mar-a-Lago selling their access to who knows who's coming in and the president seemingly unconcerned about it. It's, it is, you know, Adam Schiff was talking about this recently um, when, and he's got this whole investigation into foreign influence of the president. And the fact that we have question marks about whether or not pre- the president is pursuing policies and what he thinks is in the best interest of the United States, as much as I would disagree with that, or in the best interest of his creditors or potential business partners, that the American people cannot disaggregate those two things is a real problem. We should never have to ask the second set of questions because we should be assured on the front end that the president of the United States has divested himself of financial interest in the operations of the government. And frankly, that principle was so deeply enshrined in the Constitution that we have an emoluments clause in it. This is not some recent invention to get Trump, but a deep concern that Alexander Hamilton wrote about that is embedded in our very Constitution that President Washington talked about in his first inauguration. This is very deep and old, and it is only now that we are seeing this norm being shattered by this president. Well, yeah, indeed, it's shattered by the president. And and I should add that, you know, if you go back and you look at the Federalist Papers, as somebody I was talking to yesterday pointed out, they talk about the desire not just for a president who followed the Constitution, but uh, for a uh, what they called a sort of a virtuous citizenry, a citizenry that actually was engaged, well-read, had the best intentions of the country in mind, uh, and would elect people in the jobs of that that were to serve as a check on the president, uh, who were motivated by similar issues, and of course, one of the things we've seen, um, Evelyn, is the that there is no accountability because the president has this kind of blunt force protection of the Senate, which will essentially not convict him of anything. And so he's felt perfectly free to ignore the Monuments Clause, to go out and rent out the presidency. The, you know, Mika listed all of the all of the security or operational security issues surrounding the president. But, you know, I recall right at the time the president was elected, long before he had become uh, t- had taken the oath of office, uh, hearing reports from senior level people in the administration Um uh, and particularly intelligence community, that there were concerns because people out there in the world at large were already talking about the transactional nature of Trump and how you could do deals with Trump and how you could influence the U.S. that way. And of course, subsequently, we learned also that you could influence him with flattery and his his public opinion. And so you've got three or four or five different ways to influence this president. And of course, every government in the world that, that that seeks something from the United States is, is using them is making, is taking advantage of them. And I can't think of an analogous situation um, in, in memory. Can you, I mean, this is we're we're, we're in really, we always talk about being in uncharted territory, but this president has open himself up to blackmail, to pressure, to um, flattery, to financial inducements um, uh, that make one question almost every movie makes. Right. 
No, I mean, I think it's the it's the scale and the scope. It's it's just how much is happening right now, how much he's flaunting the law and, of course, norms. But, you know, I, I want to point out one thing that, you know, Mika mentioned the Clinton Foundation. But remember, I think I've said this before, actually, on this podcast. There was a case, maybe because I'm, I'm I'm not quite a baby boomer, but almost. I remember the Clinton administration. Thank you, by the, the way, Bill for Clinton that. Bill Clinton administration. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm just on the cusp, I think. But anyway, um, uh, under Bill Clinton, there was a scandal in 1998 where a... A gentleman, several people actually, but one of them gave a lot of money. Was in the in the millions, I believe, at that time, almost um, three million dollars. Um, in any event, these individuals gave money that they had received from the Chinese corporations to the Bill Clinton campaign, and the DNC at the end, because of a Senate, because of a Senate investigation, right, a Senate Governmental Affairs Committee at the time, governmental, that's the Homeland Security Committee now. Because of that investigation, the DNC had to return almost $3 million in illegal donations from foreign nationals, okay? So there, this has happened, you know, these little things have happened here and there, and then Congress did what it was supposed to do, and the DNC was sanctioned. The RNC needs to be sanctioned. This, this is not just about President Trump. Apparently, according to Time Magazine's story on, on this woman, Cindy Yang, and her, her, her deals with Chinese um, business people, she brought them to several RNC events, including at Mar-a-Lago and also in New York City. And apparently the buzz was, uh, I don't think they give their exact sources in the, in the, in the, re- in the reporting, but the buzz was people did notice a large number of people who seem to be Chinese nationals, presumably, I guess their English was not so good, or maybe they weren't speaking English. So the point is that they didn't seem to be like American citizens, even though they were being ferried around by an American citizen. That is that is also the responsibility of the Republican National Party to police that kind of stuff. They're going to be held liable for this, not just President Trump and his campaign. So. Um, just in that particular instance, it's clear that there's an illegal situation. And I think the problem we have in calling these things out is because there are so many of them. Some of them belong in the cultural realm and some of them are legal. And because we haven't tried them before, they're hard. So a la the emoluments clause or even the um, now, what is it? I've already forgotten the name of the law that says you can't meddle when there's a sitting president, which, you know, General Flynn was basically doing with the Russian government. Um, you know, essentially, some of these things have not been tried, but but certainly these issues of of people fronting for foreign governments and giving donations that way, those are clearly illegal. And I, and I really do believe, I mean, I believe the media accounts that have been giving us details on what the Trump administration did. And I think those, those chickens will come home to roost because they're not just an issue for Congress and the federal government. They're an issue also at the state level in multiple, in multiple states, I believe. Yeah, and I think Evelyn's right on that. It's not even just the parties themselves, but what we've seen with some of these stories about the NRA is that there are plenty of American political organizations that are receiving foreign funding and foreign influence. And I think we have some real questions about whether or not these positions are actually viable in American politics without foreign money propping them up. Well, I mean, you know, there's another set of issues associated with it, Corey, and that is the foreign policy consequences that are connected to it. I mean, on the, on the one hand, you've got 
the likelihood that this woman was at least reporting back to people who were reporting back to people in China about what she was finding out or uh, perhaps was you know even more involved with the intelligence plans of the Chinese government seems likely given how little happens uh, 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 in China that that does not involve, you know, the involvement of Chinese Communist Party, which, after all, has 90 million members. Um, but, you know, there's also the U.S.-China relationship. Ch- president Xi was supposed to come to uh, have meeting with the president at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, interestingly, the day the the story about Cindy Yang broke, the, 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 the word came down that the president, uh, Xi, was probably not going to meet at Mar-a-Lago, with the president, it was associated with uh, the, the. I love that. That means someone in the inside is still, you know, hacking away at it. Well, well, right, but you know, they they said, well, you know, the North Korean thing left them feeling uneasy, but the timing was strange, and of course, <laughs> Cindy, Cindy Yang left them feeling queasy. Right. Well, Cindy Yang had on her website an announcement of an event on March thirtieth at Mar-a-Lago. For Chinese people seeking access, you know, to the to the wow. U.S. government, wow. you know, so she was essentially kind of renting out the 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 would be summit, uh, and of course, the 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 consequence, Corey, beyond all of this is that that's an important bilateral relationship, and right now it's in a pretty lousy place on trade and the South China Sea and some other things, and so, uh, you know, sometimes we can lose 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 sight of this um uh, but the chinese don't handle these things the way the russians do that is an excellent point david uh we do have policy agendas that we are trying to pursue that we as a nation need to pursue with other countries and the fecklessness and grifterism of the trump administration make it hard uh to be able to conduct routine business like trade deals. Um, but, but yes, so there are definitely foreign policy consequences. Those consequences are negative, both internationally, makes it harder for um, good guys to associate themselves with the chief executive of the United States and makes for vulnerabilities that can be exploited by bad guys. It also has domestic consequences, not least of which is um, all of people of good faith really doubt whether the president has the country's best interests at mind at the summits with the Russians, at you know declaring his love of the leader of North Korea, um, the intemperate uh, the <laughs> the intemperate behavior of President Trump and the people around him has very real and long-term consequences that future American administrations are going to have a lot of unnecessary work on their hands to rebuild trust, to rebuild red lines, to rebuild um, public understanding of why we're at war and why it matters to rebuild the infrastructure of American foreign policy that resists further militarization of it. All of those things are harder because of the willful disregard and narcissistic 
self-enrichment of the grifters of the Trump administration. Well, think of the opportunity, Mika. You know, you can end up with a very senior position in the next Democratic administration. And the bar has been set low here that if you only steal on Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays or commit securities infractions on Tuesdays, Thursdays and Saturdays, it would be a major improvement over Trump. Yeah, but what we've seen happen, unfortunately for me and Evelyn and those of us who I think would like to serve in a democratic administration, this president has behaved in ways that are so outside the norm and so outside what is acceptable and so losing a sense of the American national security interest that in a future democratic administration, it is going to be a quite crowded field of people who are willing to serve and willing to go back in and who are willing to meet the standards that we have always held our federal employees too, in terms of the ethics and the lack of conflict of interest and divestment and security procedures. And the backlash will be such that I think there will be more scrutiny on Democratic appointees going forward. But we're going to have to, you know, be jostling shoulder to shoulder with not just all the Democrats who've served in the previous Obama administrations like Evelyn, but a large number of never Trumper Republicans like Corey, who believe in service to the nation and are willing to serve presidents who pursue the national security interests of the United States and are willing to return the nation to a bipartisan consensus on security. So I think that the stacks of resumes that are coming in are going to be quite high. <laughs> I hope, I mean, I, I genuinely hope that we can re-establish norms. You know, I, um, since, since I'm not technically a baby boomer, um, I can't comment on what it was like, you know, in the post Nixon, you know, pre and post Nixon. But I mean, clearly post Nixon, also because of a bunch of scandals that happened in the CIA that were discovered, the, you know, the, the Americans basically lost a lot of confidence and became much more cynical about government. So I don't know whether we ever went back at all, whether we fully restored our sense of ethics. I'd like to think that we did, you know, because we had we we always we had a set of standards that we thought our presidents should, you know, strive to reach. And so we didn't appoint anyone as bad as Richard Nixon, in my estimation, until now, you know, certainly with regard to breaking the law and behaving like a criminal. Um, and, and so I'd like to think that we could go back and therefore, you know, there will be lots of competition to be as um as as ethical and as qualified for positions in the future. Um, and I think um, that would be great. I just don't really know. Uh, David, maybe you have a perspective on this, having lived a little longer. Wow. <laughs> wow. I was mad at me. I just, I don't, you know, I was that pitch broke so late to the inside and down. I did not see it coming. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Nicely done. Wow. I was in high school during the Watergate hearings. And although I will admit that my nerdy tendencies had me, you know, calling in sick to school so that I could stay home (laughs) and watch the hearings, which is really sad. Okay, Uh, David, I too watched Sam Irvin and the Watergate hearings, my friend. Thank you. Thank you, Corey. That is why we adore you, because I feel less bad now that I was sitting there, you know, watching these kind of things. But really, we're looking for perspective. Well, the perspective is that the first person I worked for on Capitol Hill was a guy named Stephen Solars, 
um, who was a congressman from, from mm-hmm. Brooklyn, who was elected in 78 or 77, one of the 78, I think, one of these Watergate classes that brought a huge new influx of people who wanted to way, fix things. I think Nita Lowy, but go on. Yeah, but but that's the you know that's the point. The point is, you're absolutely right. What happens following crises like these is that our system actually works and it regenerates itself, and new people come in, uh, and they set newer, higher standards. And you know, you you ended up with Jimmy Carter ultimately as as one response to that. Now, admittedly, that was followed soon after by Ronald Reagan, and we won't get into that. But but there was a there was a there was a correction there, and and. Um, that happens, you know, on smaller scale too, after Iran Contra, there's a big correction within the NSC. Um, but you know, I, 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 th- I think the point is well taken. We only have a minute or two left and I don't want to miss the opportunities with Corey down under you. You've been there. You gave some speeches to leaders in Australia, uh, in, in addition to trekking through Tasmania. What have you learned about the Australian perspective on the world at the moment? It, it, I did not realize before I spent some time here how strikingly the Australian national security community feels like they are on the front lines of a war going on with China, where, where China is playing with a broad suite of tools that capitalize on the openness of free societies and insidiously try and undercut them, while at the same time posing uh, high-end conventional uh, war threats and mid-level intimidate smaller countries on their periphery. Like the Australian national security community is dialed in full-time on what China is doing, and we ought to be both better supporting a country that shares our interests, shares our values, has fought alongside us in in every war the United States has fought, but also we ought to be taking lessons from what they are figuring out how to do. Um, And the third thing is we ought to be really appreciative of the way when our country is consumed with the problems that we've been talking about in these last two podcasts, we should be deeply appreciative that America's friends, America's allies, the people who do not pay 150% of the cost of stationing American troops do something even more important, which is step forward and take responsibility and band together to try and hold this international order that we and they are beneficiaries of to try and hold it together at a time when the United States ought to be doing more and isn't. Well, that's a really, really important point. And, Amen. Um, I, you know, I have long thought, and finally, what, frankly, one of the few things that I've, I've agreed with the Trump administration on was the that the the quad relationship uh, in the Asia Pacific region. Uh, has is extremely important. Uh, uh, it's the basis of any kind of counterbalance uh, uh, that we, that we have there. Uh, and I have predicted for a while that 
I, you know, it, you know, 50 years from now, we might look at the U.S.-Australia relationship as the kind of special relationship that 50 years ago we looked at the U.S.-British relationship because China will have grown so much more important. Um, and uh, it may seem a little far-fetched, but they could not be more central um, uh, or important an alliance for us looking forward. Um, it's also, I love Australia. It's one of just a couple of places where anytime I get invited, uh, I say, I'm going, you know, I'm going, you know, um, and, um, uh, you know, sort of that. And, uh, I don't know the beach in California. So I guess, um, but, uh, uh, it's, it's a, it's a great place and they're lucky to have you there and we're looking forward to having you back and being able to report to us from, uh, your perch in London. Um, uh, we've been very glad to have you, uh, Mika and Evelyn, with us uh, as part of our regular family and and uh, have enjoyed this discussion. Next week, um, uh, we will have uh, Deep State Radio as usual, but I will not be there because I'm actually going to take a one-week vacation. And Rosa what? Brooke... Well, it's a, it's a deep state dog approved it, um, and uh, <laughs> um, and I'm going to be suffering away in a warmer place. Um, but Rosa Brooks will be hosting, and uh, we will be carrying on as usual. So, um, uh, you know, tune in to Deep State Radio next week. Go to deepstateradionetwork.com. Uh, listen to our other podcasts, read our other material, sign up, be a member, buy a mug, buy a T-shirt, uh, be a friend of Deep State Radio, and we'll be a friend of yours. Um, um, and 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 given that most of you are nerds who have no lives, the more friends that you can get, the better. And these are good friends we have for you here. Um, so uh, come back next week. Thank you all very much. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.